Short stories are about loss. They're about lonely figures cast in unremarkable situations made remarkable or extraordinary situations made ordinary. It doesn't matter where the stories occur or if there's a little thread of surrealism tying things together and exposing more fully what is all too real. These enthralling insights about loss and the human condition are precisely what we find in the exciting debut collection titled Land of Big Numbers by Taping Chen. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Twins who take divergent roads in life that lead to unexpected and ironic places. A woman who works at a government call center and suddenly receives a call from a violent ex-boyfriend. A group of people who sit trapped for months on a subway platform for no known reason, waiting for permission to depart. An amusement park ride designer who becomes obsessed with an ordinary woman and takes over her apartment until things take a strange and terrible turn. These are the people and situations you'll find in Land of Big Numbers. I spoke to author Taping Chen about her new story collection. This is a collection of 10 stories, but what do you tell people when they ask you? What's the book about? <laughs> <laughs> I tell them it's about men and women in love and robots that make noodles and rural inventors and all kinds of big ambitions and dreams. And of course, about China. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is your um, relationship with China, where many of the stories in this collection are set? Sure. So I was born and raised in California, but I'm ethnically Chinese by descent and spent many years in China as a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, uh, mostly in Beijing, and spent a lot of time traveling the country and meeting and talking to a lot of folk. And yeah, seeds of which are scattered throughout the book's pages. Do you feel like there's something about China in particular that was conducive somehow to that transition from reporting and writing journalism about China to writing fiction about the Chinese and China? And of course, here I mean fiction as a genre, as you know, that tells the truest truths, right? So... What was that sort of um, transition like for you? Was Is it just kind of a seamless thing for you? Yeah. I mean, I do think that China is a place that is so, so larger than life in many ways and over the top and extraordinary and propulsive and vivid. And it's a place that I think as a reporter, you know, even though my day job was writing about the country for the Wall Street Journal, it also just felt like a place that I was only ever to cap ever able to really capture a fraction of through headlines. And so for me, I mean, I think it was really a seamless kind of thing to answer your question. It was just for it was a feeling of having spent so long in a country observing and taking notes and talking to people and feeling so powerfully and urgently that there were so many stories that I wanted to tell. And fiction seemed like, you know, in some ways the best way to do it, just this a larger canvas, and in the case of this collection, you know, a series of, of ten short stories, so different um, canvases, and trying to assemble this world for readers that you know, I think, from an outside perspective, it can just be so hard to get a window onto modern China. And I think what I hope Land of Big Numbers does is 
pull readers into this world, which is just so vivid and in some ways, you know, I think surprising too for for readers who have mostly encountered it in maybe a headline context. Just um, it's a place where I, you know I think there is a lot of humor and unexpected beauty that can also be found and. Um, yeah, many many of these stories, which you know I mentioned, um, robots who make noodles, um, other sorts of details like that studded in the collection. Um, readers also um, will encounter funeral strippers, which was one <laughs> phenomenon, a real life phenomenon that I um, encountered as a reporter, and just thought was so uh, so. <laughs> compelling and just surprising and arresting of a detail you know these in, in which someone dies and you want to ensure a good turnout for the funeral and so one way to do so is to invite a stripper and so for me you know as a reporter I just I was constantly trying to build up my understanding of this world and trying to to share it with readers and yeah I mean I think at the end of the day a lot of a lot of what you see is is very much the product of, of the same sort of instinct right of of just being struck by what I was seeing and wanting to share. What I kept encountering in the stories was this sense of the funeral strippers or something that was a little bit out there made accessible. And then the more ordinary, just everyday people being sort of um, treated as extraordinary things. So there was like this very interesting um, uh paradox with the characters that I just that I just fell into and I kept thinking that that embeddedness of yours um it couldn't hurt right but do you remember mm-hmm. like a moment when you're in China and you're a reporter when you just thought this would make a great story what was there one moment like that and then the stories in the collection now yeah i mean i i truly feel like it was it was so many moments, right? And I think a lot of it stemmed for me, you know, the in many ways the desire to write this collection was also out of it came from a place of of meeting so many really extraordinary people who I think some of the spirit which animates, you know, these these stories is um, you know, it's everything from a character like Lulu, um, from the book's opening story, um, which features a pair of twins, one who becomes um, a a professional video gamer and his brilliant sister who um, ends up actually becoming an online sort of dissident activist. And, you know, to ranging to stories like that of, um, you mentioned real inventors, like a farmer who decides to build an airplane. Um, Just all these, the spirit of a lot of folk, which I encountered in China as a reporter and also just in daily life when, um, you know, people who are just incredibly creative and tenacious and striving in, in all kinds of different ways to make a mark for themselves and, you know, to, to create a sense of meaning for themselves. And I think that, that for me was really what most inspired these stories was just feeling like that was so important to capture, right? I think from a distance, we often think of, you know, when we think of China, we think of the government, we think of the communist party and we don't, tend as much to think about the people and, 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 um, you know, quite naturally. So I think it really is, is hard to, to get an underground sense of, um, the place and the people. And, um, 
and of course getting harder too with China having recently kicked out um, a number of American reporters, including my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. So yeah, I mean, I, I think it was really a, a feeling of of just in, in so many ways hoping to try and, and capture in some of these pages um, some, some of that spirit, which just struck me so much when living there. Well, you mentioned the story Lulu, and um, this is a story that appeared in The New Yorker in 2019, I think, to a, a great reaction from a lot of people. Um, and it is about these boy-girl twins um, so full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a twin to a boy, so <laughs> I, I love the story uh, for many reasons. But Lulu's twin brother is the first person narrator, and he reveals so much to us about the relationship, but mostly like the mystery of it. He says, for the first few weeks of our life, our skulls had matching indentations from where they'd been pressed against each other in the womb, like two interlocking puzzle pieces. Later in life, when we were apart, I'd sometimes touch my hand to the back of my skull when I thought of her as if seeking a phantom limb. Nailed it. <laughs> so it is a little like, you know, like that, like these interlocking puzzle yeah. pieces and this sort of phantom limb, even with fraternal twins. So the sister Lulu is that puzzle. He just can't figure her out for as much as he tries to sort of like sniff out clues and internet stalk her. And it, it sort of seems like, oh, he he's going to know everything about her, but she remains yeah. just this enigma. Um, yeah. At first, what I love about the story, it seems like she's the favored one for whom life is going to be really easy and things will not be as easy for him. And, you know, and folks need to read the story if they haven't so far. So, But there's just something about this story that is not just about the mystery between twins, but the mystery of our of our own lives when we think we we have so much control over what can possibly happen to us and it's not it's not chinese particularly mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. that's the other thing about the stories it's, is that they are they they are so universal even if something distinctly chinese is sort of happening and i'm thinking about the train story mm -hmm. um but um or even like the hotline story, but th there's mm -hmm. then there's this this other aspect of it that is just all too human and resonant. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's so beautifully put, and I'm so happy to know that you you took that from the book because to me, I mean, of course, the stories are are literally set in China, a number of them, or in the states, featuring mm -hmm. um, Chinese characters. But I mean, so much of what animates the stories and just like you know you identify Lulu is this question of just like what it means to be human and to 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 know other people or in as and we see as we see in Lulu and in other stories too to not know them the, the ways that in which we we understand misunderstand each other even those we think we know most intimately and love so deeply our family members or um people that we're in relationships with I'm thinking of um one story which features you know that that couple on a road trip through Arizona, mm -hmm. um, one of whom is a member of the Chinese diaspora, um, in a long-term relationship with um, a man and who she loves very much, but is well aware of his flaws, and you know finds the lipstick of you know a lipstick that doesn't belong to her in, in his car, and, and knows it means something, and, and yet doesn't want to confront it. And all the ways that I think again we we 
in some ways are seeing past each other or we see shadows of each other and um, are always sort of trying to resolve these these questions and sometimes sometimes more completely than others and there's and how, that sense of you know, just beauty and longing that comes along with that journey of, of trying to understand each other and ourselves. Yes, and I'm thinking about both New Fruit and Hotline Girl, which I mentioned before. Um, since some people conceive of China as kind of just one thing, a monolith, without considering the diversity or, or even the individual and individual mm. stories. So in a story like New Fruit, for example, we see that diversity, even though it's sort of like there's this cavalcade of people all eating this fruit and everybody sort of, you know, being um, enraptured with the idea of this new fruit. And, and yet they each have an individual reaction to it and an individual story around it. And then in a story like Hotline Girl, Maybe everyone thinks they know what life can be like in a work environment like this where uh, the protagonist Bai is. So she's an operator in a government helpline office. And she, you know, she falls in line with the expectations of the using the script, you know, these pre-scripted responses to the people who call in. But she is a living, breathing, thinking, feeling human being who's in a really complicated situation even if we see it on the surface as like this young love relationship that went wrong, it's not that. Like these are some really yeah. complex issues she's facing with the character of, of Keiju. So yeah. there's this idea again of China as a place maybe we think we know or we think mm-hmm. we think we, we know what's going to come to the fore of the story. It's like this very typically Chinese thing. And it's a very human thing, you know. So I think it... I think your stories do so much to um, sort of cancel out like this superficial understanding about China for so many of us who have never been there and and maybe can't really know uh, some of these things. And then and yeah, what we come away with too is that we're all the same. Like we are mm-hmm. more alike than we are different. And there's mm-hmm. a, there's a real beauty in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yeah. And speaking of Hotline Girl, I mean, that's one story where I know some readers have been really surprised by, you know, that the the setup of that story. Yeah. So a, a young woman who's working in this government satisfaction center, a call center dedicated to fielding citizen complaints. Right. And that's something that is maybe a little bit surprising to, to run into as a detail, but is actually very true to life. I mean, I think, again, from distance, people think of China's, um, you know, 1984, a society where like the government is impenetrable um, or just like a really heavy hand. And what that story is, is so much about is, of course, a young woman who's trying to find a way and, you know, has had ambitions, ends up working in this kind of government bureaucrat job, and then all of a sudden has her ex-boyfriend calling <laughs> um, the center where she works. But uh, it's also a story that's that's so much right about, um, you know, how how repressed society actually functions in many ways, and how it's possible for a young woman like, like Bai to, to end up um, in so many ways being not only comfortable, but also complicit in some ways, um, even even when, of course, her function and is at odds with some of, you know, these ambitions she'd had as, as a younger woman. And yeah, I, mean, I think all of those questions are, are ones that I was wrestling with when I was writing the book. You write in such a classic mode. And um, it's, um, for me, it's a style that's 
I'll just say it. Don't don't be embarrassed, but it's a style that's kind of reminiscent of the masters of the form. Um, it really put me in the mind in some moments of like I don't know of like Gogol. <laughs> so, oh my gosh, that's so kind of cool. Um, but of course, I mean the characters are in these contemporary settings. So uh, in the story on the street where you live, and I was so interested in this, in the story. It takes its title from this victim own song from My Fair Lady. And it's set in the in the United States. And our first person narrator is someone who designs like amusement park rides. Mm -hmm. And he's narrating from the beginning from this jail cell where you get the feeling that he does not belong there. He's so out of place <laughs> there. <laughs> Until you keep reading and you wonder if he might not be better suited someplace where he can get some help. But he seems so <laughs> reasonable and so, you know, just like you know, a really normal guy until yeah. not so much. But from that vantage yeah. point, as this narrator, he gets to tell us. He's in control of the story and he gets to tell us what's wrong with this mm -hmm. lovesick Perry who is obsessed with Lizette. And then we start to see the narrator as the one who's a little bit off in his preoccupations the more he talks. And he yeah. does reference um, Eliza Doolittle. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's just this unusual story, but unusual is not the right word. It, it's just it's a it's a remarkable story in this collection where we see that Chinese or American, our our sense of loss or of loneliness is really the same thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, it's funny, he's a character that, of course, is, is very different from who I am. I mean, he's, he's part of the, he's just like sort of the global cosmopolitan educated elite, right, rootless and wa washes up in Atlantic City and has has this job and, um, you know, this passion for, for old Hollywood and the romance and um <laughs> Yeah, it's ultimately just this really unsettling character. But actually, I just I found so much of him really empathetic in the yeah. writing of it. I mean, just the way, yeah. I mean, his his almost sort of naive love for for you know certain aspects of American culture, and of course his his incredible passion for this woman who the reader can see quite well is doesn't match you know what he's feeling. And yeah, and I just loved getting to inhabit this very particular and strange mind that's so different from mine but as you say like so so relatable even as you know the reader sees him do just increasingly comes to understand that he's he's an, a discomforting sort of individual from that the reader gets to see and understand as, as just as an increasingly discomforting figure one who you know moves into the apartment vacated by this this woman that he has a crush on and goes to the goodwill and and buys you know her old some of her old possession, just the, this, the, the growing awareness of how unsettling of, of a character he is. But at the same time, you know, as a writer going along for the ride with him, it was just, yeah, still being able to feel like he was, he was really relatable up until the end, um, which, which was a trip for me and hopefully for the reader too. Oh, the details are, are just amazing. I, I kept wondering like, where did this guy come from? And it's sort of like Lizette. Wow, Lizette with the, you know, the, uh, what was the description? The um, sugar cookie, the, the oh, unrolled. Yes. Oh, my like God, that was, that was it. <laughs> I could so see her hands. And it's sort of like Perry and, and the main character both are 
are taken with Lizette and Lizette's over here trying to find herself and figure mm-hmm. figure out a bunch of other things that we, that we are not privy to. She remains a, a, a bit of a mystery to us, mm-hmm. but she's this character who just makes everybody crazy in her mm-hmm. ordinariness, you know, of course, <laughs> it makes perfect sense. And yeah. he has this really interesting line. Um, it's, uh, it wasn't until we actually became friends that I realized she was often very sad. America is like that, I must say, free and easy until you know better. And I just, I underlined it and I just thought, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and it is true about some people that you meet. Uh, <laughs> so it it was just so insightful. He's just like this incredibly insightful character, and we and we trust him, and we're just listening to the story. And then he tells us that he goes back to the goodwill to buy her, you know, her dish towels, and and we're like, all right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, you keep extending the benefit of the doubt and you're going along right, <laughs> right with him until the end. Yeah, and even at the end, like, you know, how to feel about him? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, a <laughs> uh, it's a great story. And there, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. Um, I feel like you must just love to write. Um, and you must have just had this same sense uh, with reporting. Um so I, wa- I was curious about what maybe what you miss about reporting and then what you love about writing short stories that just makes up for that loss. Yeah. Well, um, I should be clear. So actually, I still am working as a reporter. I still am um, a full-time reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And actually, when I was writing these stories, I was um, full-time with the journal too. So I would start my days in the morning writing fiction, and then I would bike to the bureau and, and write in a very different kind of genre. Um, uh, but, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, I, I do see the two as having worked very much in tandem with, you know, in the morning going through the local papers and the headlines and seeing them almost as writing prompts in some ways, um, ideas for stories. And, 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 you know, as we, we talked about, there are definitely places where, where bits and pieces that fell out of maybe stories from the newspaper um, might have landed in, in some of these fiction pieces. Though, you know, again, it might be, it might be something as small as like a gesture, um, an expression on someone's face of someone I interviewed um, or something, um, you know, like bigger and substantial that um, ends up as a plot point like funeral strippers. But yeah, it was really, I mean, the, the two I found really spoke to each other and and for me i think also just like the discipline especially one of of working in journalism of you know that that incredibly tight compression of the writing and and needing to carve away and perpetually carve away and also just think all the time of like audience and and what do people know and um and reducing things always reducing things to you know really what was essential and timely and getting and so for me like getting to write fiction was just this like expansive experience of getting to luxuriate and really revel in all these these details of life that I really just you know they just seem so incredibly vivid and just demanded to be set down um, even even if it wasn't always possible in perhaps a newspaper context. I get the feeling you have so much fun writing the short stories. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and yeah. Creating these worlds. Uh, and... 
Oh my god. <laughs> that's yeah, I mean, that's really awesome. And, I, and I, hopefully the reader feel, feels that. I'm, I'm so glad to know that, that that came across to you. You know, it is very much like that with these stories because you sort of, you, you finish Lulu and you can't, you can't even imagine like what can come next. And then there's the next one. And then there's the, you know, it's just, and it just builds and it's, it's just an incredible world. Um, so, well, back in China, we have a story like, and help me pronounce this. Is it, is it Gubeku spirit? Gubeku spirit. Yeah, you got it. Okay. So we have a story like Gubeku spirit, which it, it's an unusual story, but with this, again, this verisimilitude that makes it all too real and realistic for that reason. It's just a really haunting story. This idea that there's a train that's running late and the passengers are waiting for it and they're not allowed to leave. The guard says, uh, passengers must exit at a different station from where they entered because those are the rules. And, and they're not, they're unmoved by the passengers who are trying to escape and who are who seem really desperate at the beginning to get out of there and then over time the passengers just accept the situation mm-hmm. and i didn't see it i really didn't even think uh while i was reading I'm, it's, this has just come into my head as i'm asking you the question of a story like shirley jackson's the lottery you know one of these stories mm-hmm. where you just sort of accept your your lot in life and what's yeah. about to happen um it's a, it's different it's a really different kind of thing and yet it's sort of grounded in this idea of the way and not just in china but the way that we just sort of fall in line with uh certain parameters or certain expectations and i'm thinking about the pandemic also, yeah. right, the things that we have to do as a society to take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but that story, did I was I was thinking this may have come from a, a, a sort of a reporter's experience. Did is that the case? Huh. Um, I think it, you know, in as much as I was living in a society where I was really struck by just what you observe. You know, I think we know to be true very much from our experience here in the U.S. of the pandemic, just that things can be demanded of you and things can change in really dramatic ways, your circumstances. And human nature is such that it can be just, it can become normal. You can you can acclimate readily. And I think in, in different contexts, that can be inspiring on the one hand, just this resilience of the human spirit and our ability to band together and form community as we see in this story. But also in other contexts, as you can see in a country like China, also quite terrifying in some ways, the implications, right, to, to live in a society where so many things are dictated for you and um, unjust and where you're surrounded by so many um, acts that, you know, say in the case of the story Lulu, you know, um, people like Lulu are rightfully really disturbed by, but at the same time, how normal it can come to seem and how quickly people can turn acquiescent. And so, yeah, I mean, that story is of course very literally about <laughs> subway commuters stuck on a platform for months, but ends up I think becoming sort of a, um, a darker fairy tale about what it means to be a human, you know, living in society where things are not quite right. I think you have, and maybe we'll have many more readers of these stories realizing that 
we all, as we read, we make assumptions about China and that there's a lot to learn about human nature, as you say, and about how much alike we are in our loneliness and in the small things that bring us comfort and happiness. Mm-hmm. What's been the driving force for you with this collection in terms of um, even as you maybe do these virtual sorts of readings um, or even as you were writing the book, what, what was the driving force for you of what you really wanted readers to begin to understand and appreciate about China and the Chinese? Yeah. I th- you know, it's funny to think of readers because I never, I never thought that the book would be published. And so it was, I, I couldn't really count as the idea of readers because again, it just <laughs> seemed like not, not quite possible. And so for me, I mean, it's really, I was just writing the stories for myself. And so it was, it was the feeling of, of living, feeling like I had the really rare privilege to be a reporter in a country that um, is, especially I think as a reporter, very, very hard to access and feeling constantly struck at the surprises and absurdities and over-the-top extremes of humanity and politics and everything in between and just constantly being struck by that and wanting to share it and preserve it in some ways to just to write it down and and to to try and also I think um I mean for me I think also it was a feeling of wanting to capture that sense of of beauty too that um, and surprise and wonder that comes in living in the country um, that I hadn't really seen replicated elsewhere that, that seemed, you know, as, as we were talking about, you know, some of the characters in this book and some of the spirit that um, lies behind characters like Cao Cao, that, that farm who wants to build an airplane or a woman like Lulu. I mean, just that, that really struck me as something to celebrate and something to try and evoke and share. And so I think that for me was, is it, you know, it was just, it was like the equivalent of just like looking around and constantly, you know, if I, if I'd been a documentarian or I would have, I would have, you know, taken out my camera and filmed, I just, any, just or a better photographer, I would have taken better pictures, but all, as it was, as a writer, I mean, all I could do is, <laughs> um, right. And, and, and and it was in some ways almost like a, a bit of an exorcism for me, I think, mm-hmm. having spent many years in a country where that can be frustrating, can be hard, um, and wrestling with some of these questions that we talked about. And But over the, the course of my living there, um, you know, really coming to, to, to love the country, to fall in love with the country in many aspects of it, even, you know, amid all the frustration and sadness that comes with living in the country and being a reporter there too. And so, yeah, all of those complexities I experienced, um, wanting to put it down on a page and try and find beauty in them. To Ping Chen, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you so much for having me on. To Ping Chen is the author of the story collection, Land of Big Numbers. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Kathleen Creeden is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. Benavides.